Welcome back to Let's Learn Something. I'm your host, Paul McTavish. As you would have heard in our last episode, we are taking a look at assessment. And as mentioned in that episode, there is a new administrative procedure focused on assessment in Prairie Spirit School Division. So we are having some discussions around that. The last episode focused on assessment working with high school students, and this episode focuses on working with our younger learners. Today, I spoke with Jesslyn Brickner. Jesslyn currently teaches grades two and three at Kalonzi School. As you'll hear, I've been fortunate to know Jesslyn for a number of years and have always appreciated her thoughtful approach to all that she does in her classroom, with her assessment practices being no exception. Some might not know this, but there is a PSSD website devoted to assessment supports, and I had approached Jesslyn about recording a short video around how she uses her online gradebook to track evidence. If you haven't seen that, you should definitely check it out under the Resources and Supports tab at sites.google.com slash spiritsd.ca slash assessment supports or by going to the All Staff Portal page and clicking on the Adventures in Assessment link that you can find in that table. The video is on the Resources and Supports page. In any case, after I had done that, I twisted her arm to record this conversation with me and I'm so glad she said yes. Just as with our conversation with Kevin Cumming in the previous episode, No matter the grade level you work with, you will find something in this conversation that will have you thinking about how you assess. So with that in mind, let's learn something about assessment with Jesslyn Brickner. Okay, I am super excited to have uh, Jesslyn Brickner here to chat with today. Um, And I don't know how many people know my backstory, but I... uh, when I first, well, I'm a, I came up as a high school teacher. I taught in a, I taught in Purdue for a while, so I did get some experience with elementary, but I'm more trained as high school. And then when I went to Clavette, um, it was a K to 12 school or pre K to 12, but I mostly worked with high school teachers. So then when I got the opportunity to move to Kalonze, uh, which, which is K to 12 school, I needed to get my elementary uh, education in a hurry. And one of the people I leaned on quite a bit was Jesslyn Brickner. So I am super excited to get to chat with Jesslyn today. So Jess, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. You are welcome. And we get to chat about assessment today, uh, which is a topic that uh, I am deeply passionate about. Um, and something that I think that there's lots of really good things that go on at elementary, and I just kind of want to highlight some of those. So that's where our conversation is going to go today. And I guess just to start with, then just to kind of throw it uh, over to you, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, what your teaching situation is right now and who you work with, just so that everybody kind of knows what context you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. So we over here in Kwanzaa, we're a pretty small school. So we are K to 12. I also came from a high school background. So going into elementary, well, almost, I guess almost a decade now it's been, it was kind of a big change for me, big shift in thinking. Um, Well, I thought so at first. In fact, now that I'm here, it's, it's not so different in a lot of ways. Anyways, so that was that was a big jump for me. My class right now is a two-three split. Uh, generally, it's three-four, and sometimes we get a, a three-grade split thrown in the mix too. But this year is a two-three split. We also have quite a few high needs in my group this year, so that adds to to the complexity, I guess, of our classroom and the and the planning that that goes into into the classroom. Yeah, totally. You get. Uh as with any school, but there's a, there'll be a diversity of learners, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, okay, so then let's talk a little bit. Let's narrow this down to assessment a little bit. So when you think about assessment, where does it fit into what you do? How are you making decisions around like where assessment fits, I guess? Uh, I like to think that once you can understand that assessment's kind of the foundation of everything that you do when it comes to planning for your classroom, um, it makes a big difference. I guess I like to think about assessment as a journey, and I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but... I like to think that we have this starting point, whether it's where the class is or a particular, you know, student or a smaller group of students. And then we have this destination, right? Like where we're going. And assessment is that critical piece in between for me, right? And it's the the foundation of planning that learning journey. It's the foundation of, you know, seeing maybe who's a couple steps ahead in this journey, maybe who's a couple steps behind in this journey and how we need you know, to all, all get to a particular point and maybe in different ways. But I think that once you've come to that point where you realize that assessment is like one of, I mean, if not the most important piece of our, you know, roles as educators, it kind of clarifies the planning process of like where I'm going and how I'm going to get there. And then it actually helps that process of gathering formative assessment to clarify that journey. So the way I connect to that, um, I always think of teaching as like having two sides to it. There's the there's the skill part as far as like the planning and the assessing and the just the pedagogical side of it. There's that whole chunk, and then the other chunk of it is around like the we're working with humans, <laughs> and so yeah. being able to like have relationships and build those relationships and work with them and those types of things. And, and I think that uh, both are challenging. I think that the assessment planning side, by far, I think assessment is the biggest chunk of that. I think if you can be good at that, I think the rest of it is stuff we can learn pretty, pretty easily. And it, and not that it's necessarily easy, but it's like, those are things that we can build in our craft and our skill set, things like that. But assessment, I think is the biggest plank on that. So that when you're talking about like how that's foundational, I really, really connect to that. So I, I completely agree. And I think it, and I think, as you said, you said you're high school trained as well. I think it doesn't matter whether you're pre-K or grade four or grade 11. It's It all comes down to that same thing. I think so too. And I think, you know, when we talk about assessment, it's funny because you, you talk about this as, you know, we're working with humans. And I think if we can look at formative assessment, right, as, as being super intentional, but also fluid, right? If you have those relationships with kiddos, that, that process of assessment is can be so fluid as well as that intentional piece but that's a really interesting thing so like and before I knew what formative um was that idea of like I'm gonna figure out where you are and help move you forward and that kind of thing I wouldn't have thought assessment involved any of that I would have said oh that's just relationship building like just being able to talk to kids and be able to hang out and ask what how they're doing and what they're doing and things like that that's just relationship building but that doesn't really inform my teaching per se Expect, except maybe to know whether Johnny is mad today or something like that. And I need to give him a little extra attention. But when I got the idea of what, as you said, like what formative, like using formative assessment, um, it's not only like getting information, but it's about through those processes, it's about establishing that relationship and establishing that like learning relationship too, I guess, because through formative assessment, you are showing that it's like, I care about where you are. I'm going to help you figure out where you are. I'm going to help you figure out what your next steps are so you can be successful. And I'm not going to throw a number on this at all while that's happening. This is just like having a conversation so that we can keep learning. 
And that was such a, like a transformational, it wasn't a moment. It was like a transformational, it takes me a long time to figure things out. So <laughs> a transformational <laughs> five years, <laughs> I guess is right, what I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, but it, but it, <laughs> it helps so much with the relationships you have with the kids in your class. I'm wondering, I know you have fantastic relationships with the kids in your class because I've seen you, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, on something like that. Yeah. And I think in those conversations and, and relationship building, A, they, they begin to trust you, right? And not only that, is you're modeling these conversation techniques, this, these pieces of reflection that they pick up on. So when we're talking with kids, you know, shoulder to shoulder, COVID, COVID protocols, mask to mask. No, um, <laughs> yeah. when we're talking with kids, we're also highlighting these really critical um, conversation techniques and, and ways that we, we think about learning and talk about learning and reflect on ourselves as learners they pick up on in those conversations together as well, right? So yes, yes, we are being fluid. Yes, we're talking about, you know, what have you at that moment, but it's also, there's so much intentionality behind it too, because you're modeling these conversation processes that are so important for self-reflection and becoming a, you know, and being able to assess um, themselves and their learning journeys. So it's very, very important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, and and this, this is a nice little segue into something we had chatted about before, but um, we had chatted a little bit about learning intentions and some people will describe those as learning targets. There's many different phrases for that, but I know you're pretty purposeful about um, using those. And I guess I already used the word, but to, to define purpose for kids. Can you talk a little bit about how that fits into what you do? Absolutely. As long as you don't mind a little story, a little history (laughs) on the process there. Uh, Yeah, for sure. I'm kind of a process person and it, it's kind of been my thinking here with intentionality has has really evolved. So when I started in the elementary world here, I did a lot of reading, you know, the likes of Ann Davies and, and quality assessment practices, which was great. And and I think, you know, 10 years ago or so, I can statements are kind of the new big thing, right? Here we're providing direction. We're putting these I can statements on the board every day. They're so great. And they are and they still are are wonderful because they do provide something concrete for kiddos, um, you know, to know, to, to self-assess, to see where they're, where they're going. But one day I was talking with a colleague and they actually were challenging me a little bit about kind of what we were learning, what we were doing. And the question came up, you know, like, Jesslyn, why? Like, what's the why behind this? Why are you doing this? And I actually had to like stop and really think about this, reflect on this. And and ever since that day, I, you know, when I go to plan and I'm, I'm planning my unit, you know, my themes, my, the learning journey, essentially not to be cliche, but when I'm planning that, I always have to think about the why, right? So when I started to truly think about the intentions, kind of of the activities I was planning, um, everything else kind of fell into place, right? I, I'd been, I'd been missing such a critical piece to that process. So when I was like, looking at these curricular objectives and and creating what I thought, you know, were these wonderful learning tasks. The big piece that I was missing was this, well, why, why are we doing this? And not just for myself as, as a teacher and as an S, you know, somebody in charge of assessing the learning here, but for kids too, kids need that, that why need that intentionality. So they, they knew exactly what we were going to be doing because of our, I can statements, but they didn't really know why. And then if I wasn't clear on that or distinct on that too, then um, it made it really difficult for the kids to, I think, find any deep meaning in in what it was that we were actually doing. So um, 
these intentions, intentionalities or intention statements that kind of developed out of this was to like clarify the connections for me as a professional, clarify, you know, our targets for, for assessment, but then mostly for, for, for me personally was, is for the kids, right? Because the kids seem to connect so much better and so much clearer to, to what we were doing and why we were doing it. If we set these uh, intention targets every day. So it was, it was really helpful. And especially during like our self-assessment or like reflective conversations, they had concrete reasoning or concrete targets that they could talk about more so than just the action itself, right? I can visualize while I'm reading. Okay. But where's the why? And, and furthermore, where's that, that piece? That's the how, like, how did we dig into this? So I just, um, yeah, I just feel that those in uh, learning intentions just help to clarify, you know, make the connections between the why and the what, right? Um, and then, like I said, just furthers that that piece for self-assessment. I really connect to that. Like, I think anytime you're you're dealing with things that are complex and, and complex is just like, it's got many layers and, and the, there's different ways you can make mistakes or get off the path or you're going to beat your own path. And I think that having a why, having a knowing where that final destination is and, and why it's important allows us to chart when we get off the path, when we get into that rough woods or <laughs> the rough water or, into those yeah. or whatever it happens to be. Like if we know where we're trying to get to, it allows us to be able to keep moving forward. And I think about that, I think about that even like in my career as an administrator, like there's many complex situations that come up and there isn't necessarily a um, clearly prescribed set of procedures to follow and you have to make some decisions. And if you understand your why, if you understand like, okay, here's the bedrock that this is based upon, it gets easier to make decisions about how you're going to navigate that. And so, and I think the same thing is for kids, like what what we're asking them to do at at their developmental ages is very, like lots of times very complex for them. We might find it to be a simple thing, but they would find it to be complex. And so knowing the why provides a little bit of a little bit of extra direction, I guess. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the value in in taking some of that time to do some of that work, um, because it can be easy just to jump to the actual work without spending your time doing that. But clearly defining the why has a lot of a lot of dividends, I guess, or a lot of a lot of benefits. That's right. And it's direct, right? It's a it's a direct thing for kiddos. Like when we start every day before a reader's workshop, I do, I set an intention. And I think that signals for their brains, like this is important, right? This is our learning intention today. They know exactly what it is that we're going to be practicing. And for me, that's a little bit deeper than, than the I can statements because there's an action and I can statement, right? There's an action that we're going to perform, but the why is just so much more specific. And I think it just signals in their brains. They know that is an important, you know, um, piece for them to to hang on to for that class. Yeah, the I can statements are kind of like, this is how I know that I got there. But like, the actual destination is described by that learning intention, that learning target, or the, the purpose or whatever, whatever language we're using. That lets us know the destination. And the but the I can is like, here's how I like how I know that I got there, how I can prove that I got there in some sense, at least that's the way I've come to think about it. 
Yeah. And I, I like how you mentioned that, you know, going off path because that happens often. Mm-hmm. Obviously our, our paths are not uh, point A to point B. And I find that uh, learning intention can really clarify that path for kiddos sometimes when say we, you know, it comes up in a conversation that this is the element that we're missing in visualizing. We're really struggling to see how we can visualize the problem or events in a text. Like that's kind of a tricky one. Characters, setting, right? They're a little bit more tangible. So then when we set that intention and talk like openly to kids about why we're setting that intention, it just clarifies for them. It makes it a little bit easier for them to, to see where we're going and why we're going there. Right. Yeah. When you think about, so I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you have something, it'd be great. Like when you think (laughs) about those intentions, like if you were doing something with readers workshop or something and you wanted to set them up to to have that intention what would be an example of something like that because when i'm i have some running through my brain and i'm also like i don't teach elementary i wonder if i'm thinking the same thing (laughs) yeah no problem so for example before we read a text this week right our intention was very specific i think that's that's the biggest thing is so the intention for reading today you know, is to listen for examples of descriptive language the author uses to develop character, right? Very, yeah, very specific so that they know exactly what our intention is for that day. And, And sometimes it's reading. There's a reading intention. Sometimes there's a listening intention. Sometimes there's a viewing intention, right? We really have to be specific on exactly what we're asking of kiddos. Nice. The other thing that I've noticed when I walked in your room, like when, when I go in there, I would see, I would see tons of stuff on the wall that there'd be a question or some sort of statement that you had written. And then there'd be a bunch of other statements underneath that with uh, initials beside of like kids that had contributed. Um, so there'd basically, there'd be a bunch of anchor charts and things like that, or even just where kids got to display their thinking. And I always thought that was really cool. And I, and I've witnessed you do that a few times with kids and I'd see their chests puff up when they, what they feel so proud <laughs> that what was, what their, their thinking was on the wall or then they could kind of point back to it. How does that fit into this whole idea of partly like defining the learning destination and partly like um, showing growth? And I just wonder, like, how do you use those things or how do you think about them? I think my thinking here has evolved a little bit too. As we talk about intentionality, I think the the whole anchor charts and purpose of has evolved a little bit. So uh, when I started the journey the reader's workshop journey, I literally had an anchor chart for everything, like everything, everything we talked about, every single text and every idea that came on a little sticky note was on an anchor chart somewhere in in the classroom, which at first I thought, oh my gosh, this is so great. Like, this is just the greatest <laughs> thing. Um, you know, we and the kids were proud. And so we were just like this whole group of super proud people because here was all of this thinking and learning on the walls and it was great. And obviously, because this you know, they're on the walls, this must mean that we are learning, right? It was like, look at all this visible evidence of the learning that's happening in our classroom. But since then, I've become a little bit more intentional because I've been asking myself, like, okay, A, what what is the purpose? Like, who are these anchor charts for, right? Number one question I've been asking myself. Most importantly, like, how do these serve the needs of my kids? What what are they doing for my kiddos? Because if they're not serving a purpose for them, then they shouldn't be there, right? Yes, they're yeah. exciting to for me to assessment wise, of course, to pop back and, and see the ideas grow and change and who's participating and and what how their ideas have changed throughout the course of a study. But like ultimately it came down to okay, how are these anchor charts best serving the needs of these kids? So uh since then, I guess I have culled back quite a bit 
on what it is that I am choosing to display. It's not that those conversations aren't taking place. It's not like that learning isn't happening. And I am still obviously keeping track of those discussions, but in a different way. So I've kind of minimized my use of anchor charts to really being very specific or selective in what I'm choosing to to display because I think it's overwhelming for kids otherwise. So I'm being very intentional with with what we're choosing to display. So for example, right now, um, it's kind of an examples person, Paul, so you have to bear with me. But ah, for, example, <laughs> for example, um, right now, I currently only have three anchor charts hung in my room. Um, one of them, for example, is what wise readers think about while they're reading. And this is one we continuously go back to as we, we learn about ourselves as wise readers, right? So it's always there. Uh, one is currently about visualizing, which is the strategy we're exploring and we add on it. You know, it's not a, it's a day to day. It's ever changing as kids learn about themselves as visualizers. That's not even a word, but we're going to make it a word. So yeah, as they yeah. learn about themselves and that strategy, we add to it. And then and one focuses on wise writers and, and your growth as a writer. But I find that if these are visible and you are returning to them purposely in your discussions, kids are actually using them, right? They're hot, they're referencing it, them, they're adding to them. They see that this is a growing and changing document. They they actually take pride in these these anchor charts and they're they what I find is they're referencing them, right? They're utilized yeah. um, to support their learning day to day, which is so great. Uh, because I think previously I don't I don't know if anchor charts were as purposeful as as they are now. And I I think now that we're uh, intentionally using them and planning around those anchor charts is is better altogether. Yeah. Do you think that's been because you curated it more that you stripped it down? So it wasn't maybe as overwhelming. It's like, okay, now I know the three things I got to pick. Do you think that's been part of it or what would you attribute that to? Or how did they always use it? I guess that's the question. Yeah, I think, and th those were always there. We always had those, those uh, kind of thematic, but they were kind of buried in, in this massive thinking and display of, of this great learning. But I just don't know if, um, that was as effective because it, they weren't highlighted or weren't referenced purposely. Whereas this way, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to be intentional about what we're displaying and why we're displaying it. And if they're up on the wall, there needs to be a reason and the kids need to know that reason. And they, and they need to know that they can, they can help them. It can help guide their learning as wise readers and writers and thinkers. But otherwise we just, you know, we just got to keep asking that, that why. I guess the follow-up question that I'd want to ask you about that then, or I guess the connection to make, there's this idea from Angela Duckworth, who is like the, she's the grit lady. Uh, and mm -hmm. she talks about this idea of like the difference between nuance and novelty. The novelty is when you, when you first get exposed to something, uh, it's new and it's super exciting and you're all fired up about it. And that's when, yeah, I guess you're in the stage of like, you're putting up anchor charts all over the place because you love what they do and you love uh, how the kids respond to it. And then uh, when you have a little more experience, you get to the nuance stage, which is where you understand it at a, at a much deeper level. So you can make more nuanced decisions around what fits and what isn't useful. Um, and so basically you're making stronger decisions about what should be on the wall. And uh, your example really makes me think about that. It sounds like that's where you got to with the anchor charts and what fits on your wall. And I think that's, that's really impressive. 
makes me kind of wonder then like what else are you have you kind of evolved in like what's what do you do that that works well for assessment or when you're working with your kids to collect evidence or record evidence and stuff like that like what else works for you i guess is what i'd say uh, i think there's a lot right i think when you start out as a beginning teacher and you're really just trying to do the absolute best you can do and and, you know, it makes me think of lots of conversations with Karen Campbell where you have to kind of refocus um, thinking about yourself to thinking about your kids, right? So instead of thinking about, you know, your practice or in, in the way that's like, what are people going to think about my practice or, right? It's just you, you, you're you pretty critical of yourself to that point where, well, what's actually best for kids? And if you get to that point where you kind of get over yourself, frankly, right? yeah. <laughs> let's just get over yourself and you start to truly think about the needs of kiddos, um, you you find, I think, what works works better. So for me, that anchor charts is obviously one of them. Just formative assessment in general, planning uh, those learning targets for me has evolved completely now that, you know, we've, I've been more intentional about setting targets, um, which helps me plan that performance criteria way um, more responsibly, I suppose. So I feel like I have a, a, a better understanding of, of where we're going and why we're going there and then how to, what to look for, right? Just, just a little bit more clear what student success looks like there. I also think, even just my understanding of running records, which we've talked about uh, before, you and I have talked about lots about how to use PowerSchool. So I think yeah. getting over the fact that PowerSchool, right, has, is this kind of intimidating products-based database. And it, it's so, you know, much more than that. And and you can individualize your PowerSchool to be what you need it to be. So instead of having to um, have these external running records and have all these different papers and different directions and, and things that don't really work for you. You, you know, I, I've found that PowerSchool database is so great for collecting evidence, regardless of, you know, if they're products, they're just, you know, discussions, observations, those conversations that are so important can be tracked there. So that has been a big learning for me and it's been saved lifesaver for me because it just can, can hold all that, that data for me. And when you do that, when you're collecting that evidence in power school, you're probably not running a ton of notes, right? It's more just like, this is just some numbers to help me kind of see some trends and where kids are at, right? Whether they are conversations, observations, products, like it allows you to collect a bunch of information in one place so you can see it and it's not everywhere. Like that's the benefit if I'm, if I'm reading that right. Absolutely. Because I mean, in the end um, of, and I don't like to use the terms in the end, but when it gets to that point where we have to report and we have to yeah. share that knowledge with parents, you know, we had 900 characters on a report card, that's it. So that when we get to that point, I've already had, you know, kept track of all these great conversations and our next steps. And you have to call that down into one 900 character comment it's pretty tricky yeah. otherwise so like I don't yeah. want to overwhelm my myself by trying to keep track of um in power school with all these written comments I don't think that's the benefit of it I think um the benefit is is that we can call that information down and be very frank with with what we're seeing which is nice totally before I so rudely cut you off where were you going uh, no problem yeah no problem at all uh, the last thing I was just talking about with what works well is, you know, I, I do love PowerSchool Pro for that reason that you can uh, keep track in 
very minimalistic ways, right? You got her, you don't got her, you're showing me some great things. That's wonderful. Um, but I also, I do think you, for yourself and to keep some accountability and to help keep track of your kiddos journeys, especially in like readers workshop, for example, I do think you, you, it's nice to have some form of running record, but that works for you. Right. So, so my advice here is, is try, try different running records. I mean, the gurus like Stephanie Harvey and Adrian Keir and Debbie Miller, Patrick Allen, there's a million different wonderful resources out there to help you get started in keeping track of, you know, your students thinking, but find a running record that works for you. Try them, try a bunch of different ones um, and just find what actually works for you. Because if it doesn't work for you and you're trying to collect data and assess on the fly and it, and you're trying to fit your thinking into some form that's the questions you're not asking or the way you don't, you you know, have conversations with kids, it's not natural for you. That's, it's not going to be effective in collecting, collecting uh, data. So that that's my piece of advice there for what works well. Yeah. So I'm going to dig a little deeper because this is where my ignorance shows. Cause I don't, I don't do this regularly. Uh, work, <laughs> work with little kids and collect their, their evidence. Cause when I, I would have been for high school kids, it'd have been like, um, show me this. And then it would have been on them to produce the evidence. And then it either comes a video they recorded or something they wrote down or whatever, much more scaffolding, I think probably for younger kids, though they still have lots of those skills. But so when you say running record, are you talking about like just a notebook where I make notes or a check sheet that I have that I like, or maybe all of those? I'm just, can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it really looks different. Um, and there's no, not one way to do this for sure. So I think something that we do, of course, is our thinking journals where the, the ownership is, is a lot on the kiddos, but to effectively like to do this effectively to have quality uh, feedback in those thinking journals is it does require a ton of scaffolding and and modeling those practices but when I'm talking specifically about running records I'm talking about what I have when I sit down to read with a kiddo and so a lot of these go through you know writing down their thinking through a, their summaries and then talking with them about their next steps and just kind of check-ins essentially but purposeful check-ins and I think um I both are valuable but if you if you are going to choose to do thinking journals just make sure that this is something that you're you're not throwing your kids under the bus you're really modeling those techniques you're modeling how to respond and all the different ways that you can respond to text um they're great they're wonderful pieces of evidence using thinking journals are honestly one of the greatest things if used and modeled properly scaffolded that process for sure but Excellent. Two, two questions on that. So if somebody wanted to yeah. like dig deeper into that, who would be an author you like you named four, but would any of those be good or who would you point people towards? Oh, for sure. Like Patrick Allen is okay. um, a wonderful middle of the ground kind of elementary person to, yeah. to if you want to really dig into thinking journals. Uh, he's great. Debbie Miller is is quite elementary. Like she, when when you're K to three and you're like, this is impossible. How do I start this? She's a really great resource to start with. Just okay. if you're just starting out and and you're trying to think of how you can use use uh, thinking journals to track your track your kiddos thinking. Perfect. And then my second question related to that is, um, I'm just interested when you, you said for next steps for the for the age you work at, anywhere from grade two to four, kind of thing, depending on the year. 
how much can you leave that with them or how much do you have to write it down for them or how do they like, cause yeah, I just wonder how much, how much work are you doing in that to help them track it or do you leave it with them or what does that look like? Yeah, great question. And I know you and I have had conversations about next step thinking before, um, cause this is one of the, my gray areas, I suppose. Yeah. So next step thinking is very specifically, if I just talking about workshop model, um, it has to be demonstrated. I have to model this process for them and together with them, of course, they need those tools um, to grow and to learn how to do this. You don't, you know, right. You don't know what you don't know. So these kiddos need a lot of guidance at the beginning of the year. So while we're working together, if there's certain things in their reading that I've noticed as they're reading or, or maybe even a particular theme that we're practicing um, as wise readers, that's generally where our goal setting will focus, right? Something we've noticed that's come up during their reading or, or thematically. And I often always am guiding that process at the beginning. Rarely we get to that point where there it's a hundred percent on them. Like that yeah. it's, that's pretty rare to in a K to three setting. It's possible. I've seen it, but it's generally guided or like held accountable through our, our conversations together. I love when you get to that point that kiddos are noticing those things. And, um, but often it's, it's growing from the connections we've already made or some, a goal we've already set. Uh, but that's a lot of language that they, that needs to be modeled and a lot of language that you have to develop together in your conversations. So it's, it's critical to have those conversations for sure. So then if that's one of if the next steps part is part where you're still wrestling with kind of find the, the, the nuance you like, I guess, is the way it phrase that. What are some of the other things that are still a challenge as you think about how we assess or how we think about assessment with early elementary students? Yeah, this is such a great question. I've been thinking about this a lot this year. There's it's kind of three pronged for me. Um, the biggest area, gray area for me currently is that. And especially because we're in reporting period right now is everything centers around next steps thinking, which is wonderful. And and we have this large focus on, you know, students as assessment capable learners. That's that's a really important piece in in our division. And we really focus on that. But in K to three, I really struggle to, you know, to determine how involved kids should be in their next steps. I I don't want to be I don't want that to come out the wrong way. But I just find in general that next steps thinking is is very overwhelming for kiddos, um, especially to try to do 100% independently. And I, I just wonder how many um, goals, I guess, kiddos need to try to keep track of at one time. So if we have set a reading intention together and we have this goal and it's our next step, is one enough? Because then when we pop into the writer's workshop later and, and then we we may confer and we might set a goal. Okay, great. That's wonderful. And then later in math, we might set a goal. So I, I keep right. thinking about these next steps. And I, I just wonder um, how involved kiddos should be with that next steps in, in terms of ownership. And then how how many are realistic, right? When we, when we talk about goal setting or next steps, how many can kiddos... Um, feel accountable for at one time, uh, just to compare it to ourselves as adult learners. <laughs> January first rolls around, and and we set one <laughs> right. We set a goal, and yeah. here's our our New Year's resolution. And honestly, we lose track of goals, our goals as adults. So it's yeah. it's difficult for me to discern um, how many and and to to what extent that involvement should be, and and how effective it really is for them. If we're if we're trying to do next steps, thinking in every single aspect of what we're doing with kiddos, but 
I think that's a fascinating question because I I think that, and I don't think it's different from when kids are in high school. Like we asked them to take, well, in a pandemic, it's been a little bit different because we've got some block classes in some schools, but uh, typically we would ask them to take five courses in a semester and period one, we'd ask them to think like a writer and period two, we'd ask them to think like a mathematician and period three, we'd ask them to think like an artist. And and there's definitely bleed between all of those, but we separate those things into the, into the domains so much, like the curricula do that. And so how much is reasonable to think that a kid can focus on at any one time when you say like as adults, we might have, we may have two areas where we're trying to grow and that might even be a stretch. They're just trying to manage the rest of our lives and things like that. So I do think that's a really fascinating. It actually reminds me of a conversation you and I have had many times in the past about, you know, just being thinkers, right? Yeah. And perhaps when we are setting goals, I've, I've often thought, you know, how can this just relate to us as thinkers? What does this mean for me as a, as a thinker? And, and maybe our next steps are so folk curriculum based and so focused on a specific skill or strategy that maybe we lose a little bit of sight on, on that, like as a thinker, how we can choose a strategy to develop, you know, that that's just based on ourselves as, as being thinkers. Well, now you're speaking my language. Yeah, <laughs> we have had that conversation before, but I, I'm very passionate about that idea of just like, how do we build people that can think, who can solve problems, who, right. who know what to do when they don't know what to do, those types of things. And and those skills that are transferable between different domains, between different classes, between different contexts, all those types of things, like those are the enduring things. So yeah, I'm, I'm all on board with that. <laughs> so. That's right. And now we just need to get those progress reports. This looking the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't, uh, don't get, mute me on that one. No, I'm yeah, just kidding. No, for sure. <laughs> um, anything else that's challenged you? Anything else that's kind of you're wondering about or still working at? When I, I said three prongs, that that one's obviously the one that weighs on me the most. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two that I, I've been just thinking about in terms of assessment is that with with um, COVID protocols, I, I really do miss that that group atmosphere where you mm. can, you know, get together and and talk as as a group and work through things as a group. And I, I find K to three, we don't we don't really have the same genuine accessibility to technology or or, you know, that's a lot of scaffolding and a lot of modeling to uh, discussions in general, then try to take those discussions online. Yeah, there's so many logistic things you got to work through with kids that do not exist at higher levels. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and I think a lot of the assessment data that I collect came out of those conversations and observations yeah. with small groups and the way they can, you know, conferred with one another. And then lastly, um, I guess one of the biggest pieces for assessment for me is is always going to be parent engagement and, and finding the most meaningful ways to share assessment data with, with parents. Um, obviously, we have, you know how I feel about those those evenings where we were able to share our learning in meaningful yes. ways with parent, parents in, in the building. And without those celebration of learning nights, I just feel the, the process of has moved digitally. Of course, it has to, but I just don't feel like it's the most engaging way especially K to three, I just, I just loses some, some of that fizzle. But um, so those are kind of the areas that I'm, I'm really thinking about for next steps. So just, just so everybody else is kind of with us. So when you're talking about those learning celebrations night, you would have structures where kids would come in and walk their parents through kind of what was, what were their celebrations, what they could learn, stuff like that. And it just, 
I loved that because one, it allowed the kid to show off for their parents and it was all focused on learning, which is fantastic. And two, it provides a space for the parents to be on the school landscape and feel like they belong there and feel like they're welcome mm-hmm. there and, and, and to just see their kid be successful and feel that their kid is taken care of there at school. And it just builds so many, th- it just builds so many positive characteristics and traits and, yeah, it's definitely a loss. And I know, and speaking with SCCs this year, I know that there's chairs and members who are who are feeling that too. They love being yeah. part of the school. They love being on the school landscape. And so, yes, that has definitely been a, a challenge and a struggle. And I think everyone will be happy when we can, when we have made our way through this pandemic and things can change uh, back to some things we like and maybe even some things that are better that we've learned. So for sure, for sure. Those are really some fantastic ideas. And that's why I always love talking to you because I kind of get to explore some things I haven't thought about or learned about. So I really appreciate this. And I know everybody else who listens to this will too as well. So Jessalyn, thank you so much for, for taking the time to have this conversation. Thanks for having me. That's our show on assessment from an elementary educator's perspective. Huge thank you to Jessalyn for sharing her time and thoughts with us in this conversation. It's humbling to get to hear classroom teachers talk about what they do and share it with all of you. We have more to come in the near future, so stay tuned to this podcast feed for more conversations with Prairie Spirit teachers. Until then, stay safe and take care.